When I'm researching a lot of these cases, I can't help but wonder if one small decision was made differently, would there have been the same outcome? Would the victim have ever met their killer if one minuscule thing happened differently? Even if the timing would have been off by just a few seconds. Today's case is one that really had me thinking like this. And I think that line of thinking could go into a lot of situations, not just true crime cases. And it could really leave your brain spinning for hours. I'm your host, Coy Atkins, and this is the story of Janet March. Janet Levine was born in 1963, and her father Lawrence was a lawyer. He would eventually become one of the most prominent lawyers in Nashville, Tennessee, but that was still yet to come. When Janet was born, he was building his practice and he specialized in insurance defense. Janet was the first of three children for Lawrence and his wife Carolyn. While growing up, Janet took to art and her dream was to be an artist or a magazine illustrator. Before she graduated high school, she already had several paintings that local restaurants put up for sale. Janet was a great student, active in her school, and she was even her class vice president. With all of her hard work, she was accepted into her father's alma mater, the University of Michigan. It was no surprise that while at the University of Michigan, Janet studied art. During her sophomore year, Janet's roommate introduced her to a guy named Perry March. While she was in college, some of her friends said that she would forget that she had plans and she would end up running late to a lot of things. Which is exactly what happened for her first date with Perry. She overslept and was late to their date to the campus synagogue. Even though there was the small hiccup on their first date, the two quickly became inseparable. When Perry graduated college, he took a job as a broker at an investment bank in Chicago. Janet moved with him and went to the Art Institute, but she missed being back home in Tennessee. Her parents agreed to pay Perry's tuition for Vanderbilt University Law School if they moved back to Nashville, so they did. In 1987, Janet knew that she wanted to marry Perry, but he hadn't proposed yet, so she proposed to him at a park in Nashville, and Perry said yes. Her parents put up the money to buy them a house in a nice neighborhood. Perry graduated law school a year later and was offered jobs from a few well-known law firms in New York City. However, Perry decided to stay in Nashville and he took a job at a local firm specializing in finance. Janet then got her dream job and became an illustrator for children's books. In 1990, the couple welcomed their first child, a son named Samson. Around this time, Perry's father, Arthur, was having some financial issues. Arthur was a Roman Jewish immigrant, and when he came to America, he changed his name to Arthur March. He joined the army and eventually settled down in Indiana, where he became a pharmacist. In 1970, his wife, Tizipora, died under some suspicious circumstances. Arthur said that her death was caused by anaphylactic shock. From my 
Quick Gray's Anatomy Research. That's a type of shock that your body goes into after a bad allergic reaction, which can cause death. However, her death certificate says that her death was from an accidental overdose. When Arthur was going through some financial problems, Lawrence bought Arthur's house when it foreclosed. Lawrence then let Arthur stay there. Now, some accounts say that he stayed there for free, while others say that he was just charged a very cheap rent. But eventually, Lawrence sold the house and allowed Arthur to move into his house back in Nashville. Lawrence gave Arthur some money to help him rebuild his life in Nashville. As bad as the early 1990s was for Arthur, things began getting worse for Janet and Perry's marriage when a paralegal began finding anonymous letters left on her desk. I really can't thank everyone enough for all of the support for this podcast and for my book. I know that just listening to this, you've already done a lot to help me, but I'm going to ask for one favor. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, if you're able to, please leave a rating or a review for the show. It helps me out and it helps other people find the show. It doesn't even have to be a good rating. If you absolutely hate the show and you want to tell me that, you can write how much you hate it. Whether you hate it or not, thank you for the support. In 1991, a paralegal at Perry's law firm began finding anonymous letters that were typed out on her desk. These letters were from a secret admirer who complimented her body and basically talked about how obsessed he was with her. The author of these letters wrote to her confessing that he was married, and in the past, he never understood how men had affairs. But now, after meeting her, even though he loved his wife, he understood. In one letter, the writer asked the paralegal to leave a note for him in a certain book in the law firm's library if she was interested in doing the things that he wrote about. The paralegal let the management of the firm know about these letters and they went right to work. They brought in an outside investigator and set up hidden cameras, specifically a hidden camera monitoring the exact book that the letter was supposed to be left in. Then they caught Perry going to that certain book. Perry was confronted by management and given two options. He could resign on his own if he sought professional therapy, or he could be fired. Perry wanted to keep everything a secret from Janet. He ended up getting fired from the law firm, and he agreed to pay the paralegal $25,000 over the course of four years to avoid a sexual harassment lawsuit. He also kept those monthly payments hidden from Janet. Perry ended up taking a job with Lawrence's law firm, and Janet continued to work as an artist. Janet kept to herself a lot. Her lunch breaks were usually spent alone in a restaurant drawing on her sketch pad, and she didn't talk about her relationship issues with anyone. But Perry, on the other hand, was more of an open book. He actually became really close with Janet's mother, Carolyn, and in 1993, he admitted to her that he and Janet were having marriage issues. The two of them then began seeing a marriage counselor. In 1994, Janet and Perry had their second child, a daughter named Zipporah after Perry's mother. It was time for their growing family to move to a bigger house. They bought four acres in Forest Hills, which is a very wealthy suburb of Nashville. They began building a 5,300 square foot home for $650,000. Even though their family grew and their house got bigger, 
1996, the marriage problems continued. Once they moved into the new house in 1996, Perry began seeing a psychiatrist. Janet even went with him on a few of those visits, but Perry, he then began spending nights away from the house. A client of his was an owner of a nightclub in Nashville, and Perry would use his condo to stay in. Other friends also claimed to see Perry out with various women around this time. Even when Perry was home, things weren't good. Him and Janet continued to argue back and forth to the point where their psychiatrist suggested that they try out a trial separation. Perry even reached out to Caroline and told her that he felt like Janet was going to divorce him. On August 14, 1996, Ella, who was the children's nanny, was at the home. Normally, Ella and Janet would sit and talk for a little while whenever Ella arrived for work. But that day seemed to be different. Janet was quiet. She didn't talk much to Ella. Instead, she was working on her computer all day with her office door closed, which was another thing that seemed out of the ordinary because Janet always kept her office door open. On August 15th, two cabinet makers were at the house to do some work installing countertops in the kitchen while Janet stood nearby supervising them. On August 15th, two cabinet makers were at the house installing countertops in the kitchen while Janet stood nearby supervising them. That night, Perry actually came home, and the arguing continued. According to Perry, around 8.30, he offered to leave and go stay at a hotel. But Janet said that she needed a break and she was going on a vacation. She packed two bags in a suitcase, her passport, $1,500 in cash, and a bag of weed and left in her gray Volvo. She also left him with a list of things that she wanted him to get done while she was gone. A little after 9 p.m., Perry made a few phone calls to a family member and friends telling them that Janet left him and the children. The next morning, Deneen Beard, the house cleaner for Janet and Perry, showed up at the house between 8 and 8.30. Except things seemed odd to her. It was almost as if her job was already done, because the house seemed much cleaner than normal. Perry told Deneen that Janet was on a business trip to California, told her that she could continue cleaning the house, just don't clean the children's playroom. Ella arrived around 9.30 to start looking out for the children. Perry explained to her that Janet was in California, but instead of a business trip, he told Ella that Janet was visiting her brother. I'm no detective, but I think this is kind of the part in this case where things start looking a little more suspicious and things start spiraling a little bit. But because most of Deneen's job was already done, she was finished cleaning the house and left before Ella arrived. Around 10 that morning, a woman named Marissa brought her son over for a play date that was scheduled with Samson. Marissa stood outside with her son and neither Perry or Janet came out. Samson ended up letting Marissa in through the door. While he was talking with her, he was jumping up and down on a rolled-up oriental rug that was placed just outside the kitchen, next to the playroom. When Perry came out, he was confused because he had no idea about the scheduled play date. Marissa came and picked up her son around 2 that afternoon. Once she left, Perry drove his children over to Janet's parents' house. Initially, Lawrence and Caroline believed Perry's version of the story, and Janet left after an argument. But they were still worried about her well-being, because it was completely out of character for her to leave her children. So, Perry went with Lawrence to see if they could find Janet's car at the Nashville airport. But they didn't find it. On August 17th, Caroline wanted to call the police and report her daughter's missing. 
but Perry convinced her to wait. He said that the list of things that she left him to do had a timeline of 12 days, so she must have planned to be away for at least 12 days. After all, maybe she just needed some space. But that didn't ease Caroline's mind. Perry also had his brother Ron and his father, who was now living in Mexico, to come help look for Janet in the meantime. Over the next 12 days, Perry and his family, Lawrence and Carolyn, they searched and tried any way that they could to get a hold of Janet, but nothing seemed to work. Around the end of that 12 days also happened to be a very important date that seemed to set things in perspective. August 25th was Samson's fifth birthday. There was no way that Janet would miss her son's birthday party. Once that day came, with no sign of Janet, Lawrence and Caroline knew something was wrong. On August 29th, Lawrence and Caroline contacted the Nashville Police Department and reported Janet as missing. Once the police began their investigation, things started coming together, and for certain people they started falling apart. When Janet was reported missing, an officer went out to Lawrence and Carolyn's house, and Perry was at the house at that time. When the officer showed up, Perry began shaking so bad that he couldn't stand up out of his chair, and it took him several tries of trying to get out of the chair before he was finally able to stand. Detectives' first step in this investigation was to look at Janet's bank statements. Since the night of the fight with Perry, not a single thing was purchased on her debit or credit card, which she typically used her credit card when she made any sort of purchases. On September 7th, police got their first break in the case. Janet's car was found backed into a parking space in an apartment complex about five miles from her house. The outside of the car had a layer of dust and pollen on it, and there were cobwebs in the tires, suggesting that it was parked and hadn't been moved in a while. Inside the car, police found Janet's purse, passport, $11 in cash, a suitcase, and a small bag with toiletry items. But the packing of the suitcase and bag seemed a little odd. The suitcase was packed with only sundresses, but there weren't any bras or underwear in it. The toiletry bag didn't have a hairbrush or any toothpaste in it. A private investigator was hired by Janet's family, and on the day that the vehicle was found, the investigator spoke with Perry. She noted that whenever Perry spoke about Janet, he referred to her in the past tense. After her interview, she went to the apartment complex to speak with residents about anything that they may have seen. Somehow, Perry found out about her going there. He called her and demanded a list of everyone that she was talking to. Now, I couldn't find anything on if this list was provided to him, but I highly doubt it. On September 10th, detectives interviewed Perry. He seemed nervous talking to the detectives. While he did give them a written statement for what happened with him and Janet on August 15th, he refused to allow them to search the house. On September 16th, detectives obtained a search warrant for Perry's house. When they served the warrant, they found that the hard drive to the computer had been removed but they couldn't find it anywhere in the house. Soon after the search of the house, Perry moved to Chicago and rented a house near his brother. He took the kids and Janet's possessions with him. By this time, Janet's family believed that Perry was responsible for her death or disappearance. Police announced that the investigation was now being treated as a homicide investigation. 
They brought in cadaver dogs, divers, and thermal imaging devices to search the woods around Janet and Perry's house, but came up empty. In November, a memorial service for Janet was held in Nashville. While her friends and family were there, Perry didn't show up, which led more people to believe that he had something to do with her disappearance. While things looked suspicious for Perry, detectives were not able to prove that he killed Janet. They hadn't found her body or enough evidence to charge him. As a few years passed, Perry and Lawrence went back and forth in civil court fighting over Janet's assets and over allowing Lawrence and Caroline to have visitation rights to their grandchildren. In 1999, a court awarded Lawrence and Janet visitation rights. So, they made the seven-hour trip from Nashville to Chicago. But when they arrived, they were met with a big surprise. Perry wasn't in Chicago. His brother told them that he moved to Mexico with their father. While civil cases continued to go back and forth, detectives with the Nashville Police Department continued their work. In 2001, detectives received information that Perry threatened a lawyer and their client, saying that he would do away with them, just like he did with his wife. A few years later, in 2004, a lot of evidence was still the same. It was mostly stories from Perry that were contradicting to each other, and things that he told people. Detectives and prosecutors decided to take their chance and they began secretly presenting evidence to a grand jury in this case. They had 59 witnesses testify to their grand jury, which returned an indictment of charges of second-degree murder, tampering with evidence, and the abuse of a corpse. They kept the charges a secret, while the FBI began working with the Mexican government to secure Perry's extradition paperwork. In August of 2005, Perry was at a restaurant that he owned, and he was preparing to open up for the day. Police showed up at the restaurant and placed him under arrest. He was then put on a plane to Los Angeles where he was turned over to the FBI. On the plane back to Nashville, one of the cold case detectives sat next to Perry. Perry told the detective that he wanted to talk with him. He said that he was willing to plead guilty if he could be guaranteed that he didn't spend more than seven years in prison. He then began asking what prison was like. He asked if Janet's body had been found and then he asked if he could be found guilty of second-degree murder if the death was accidental. Once he was in Nashville, Perry was held in the county jail. On his first night in jail, he approached another inmate named Russell, who was awaiting trial for an attempted murder charge. Perry asked Russell similar questions about what prison life would be like. As the two began talking more, they became close. Perry then offered to post Russell's bond if he would do him a favor. He wanted Russell to kill Lawrence and Caroline. Russell saw a much better opportunity, though, than just having his bond posted. He went to his attorney, and together, they went to the police, and they arranged for Russell to record these conversations. Perry gave Russell his father's phone number and a list of code words to use with Arthur. Then, to make it look like Russell did bond out, he was transferred to a different county jail. Before his release, though, Perry wrote down the home address for Lawrence and Carolyn and gave it to Russell. Then, there were five separate phone conversations recorded between Arthur and Russell. Arthur instructed Russell on the time of day to go to the house, where to get a gun, 
what kind of gun, and to wear gloves. The plan was that after the murder, Russell would get on a plane and go to Mexico where Arthur would hide him out. So the plan played out as far as Arthur and Perry knew. On the day that Russell was supposed to arrive in Mexico, Arthur went to pick him up at the airport. But instead of Russell, he was met by an FBI agent. Perry was additionally charged with two counts of conspiracy to commit murder, and Arthur was also charged the same. But authorities didn't have the extradition set up for Arthur like they did with Perry, so he remained in Mexico. Before Perry's murder trial, he faced other charges. In 2006, he was found guilty of embezzling $23,000 from Lawrence's law firm, which happened two years before Janet disappeared. Two months later, he was found guilty on the conspiracy to commit murder charges. In June of 2006, almost 10 years after Janet's disappearance, the trial began. A lot of people testified in this case. From the house cleaners to the babysitter, the friends, the cabinet makers that were the last ones to actually see Janet, family members, crime scene investigators, cold case detectives, FBI agents, and even more jail informants. But there was one witness that really sealed the deal in this case. Perry's own father, Arthur. Arthur didn't want to go to prison. He knew he wasn't going to get out of the conspiracy charges, so he agreed to a plea deal. The jury was shown a video testimony by Arthur. Arthur claimed that Perry called him after Janet went missing and confessed to killing her. He asked Arthur for help, at which time Arthur left Mexico and traveled to Nashville. Perry asked Arthur for two favors. One was to get rid of the computer hard drive and to help get rid of Janet's body. Arthur said that he disposed of the hard drive in a wooded area. Arthur then said that Perry took him to a 100-acre lot on the north side of Nashville, whose owner was one of the recent clients of the law firm. Hidden in the woods was a trash bag that had Janet's body in it. The plan was to take Janet's body to Kentucky and dump it into a creek or lake. Arthur drove about an hour to Bowling Green, Kentucky, but he couldn't find a creek or lake deep enough to hide the body, so he decided to bury it in the woods. Prosecutors tried to have Arthur lead them to Janet's body, but he was unable to find exactly where he buried her. In August of 2006, Perry was found guilty on all of the charges. With the murder and the conspiracy charges, he was sentenced to a total of 56 years in prison. With Arthur's plea deal, he ended up being sentenced to five years. However, he died three months later in prison. Perry, of course, filed appeals for this case, one of which claimed that on the plane ride back to Nashville, when he sat next to the cold case detective and began talking about the case, he should have been read his Miranda rights. And since he wasn't, that testimony shouldn't have been allowed in court. So they were trying to get a mistrial and have the conviction overturned. But the court said that Perry was an attorney, so he knew his rights before he even started that conversation. And after a few other attempts to get the charges thrown out, the courts held up the conviction, and Perry still remains in prison. Lawrence and Caroline received custody of their grandchildren in 2005. An art gallery in Nashville's Gordon Jewish Community Center was named in Janet's honor. And this is going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode. Thank you for listening.